So we continue this series from on the identity of the people of God. We are recording here in Grand Cayman and so and we're doing that outdoors so there are many distractions. People will be passing by behind me. Uh, you'll hear the sound of the surf. Um, you'll hear various noises and the like. So you'll have to be very attentive uh, but I hope also that you enjoy the scenery while you are looking, while you're listening to this message. The prior two messages have addressed the question of the identity of believers in our day and in our time. Now, the typical gospel has been how God created man, man sinned, uh, Christ came to die for man, on the cross which he accomplished fully and completely and if we accept this salvation we'll go to heaven when we die. All these things are true but they're neither the beginning of the gospel nor the end of the gospel. They're a slice of the gospel and in fact this gospel being only a partial gospel has left untended the entire issue of why God created us in the first place. But in the times in which we are living, there's such an upheaval, such turmoil, because among other things, what is clear and apparent is that far beyond the issue of nations losing their way, the church has lost its way. As I mentioned in the first couple of broadcasts, the evangelical church, here in the United States in particular, uh, has become a political arm of the Republican Party. And it has been pandered to by the Republicans, but it also has been, um, it has placed its hope in the fortunes of a nation. Now, by saying that, I'm by no means suggesting that it should have been a member of the Democratic, it should have been an arm of the Democratic Party. I'm saying that the kingdom of heaven is neither. And whereas as citizens, we have the freedom as individuals to vote as we would choose, we should never, the leadership of the church should never have committed it to any secular or political uh, party and it did so the leadership for a long time for more than 50 years since the 1950s uh, key and obvious leaders at that time sought the favor of governments and of presidents it should never have done that that was a mistake but I'll grant it was all that they knew the revelation of the kingdom of God was not a common revelation in those times and so men acted on the basis of their reason. Similarly, the rejection of the Holy Spirit across the board left man only to the devices of his own mind, the imaginations of his own mind and those became rational, logical. The reason prevailed. And the reason was 
if the church had the support of governments, then it could be very powerful within society. Now, by the way, that's not a new idea. That goes back since the days of the Roman church, when the state, the Roman state, offered the church the opportunity to be the church of the empire. So it gave it a franchise, but required it to be accountable to the state. Every permutation of this concept, whether it is the state church or independent charismatic churches or independent denominations, whether one or the other, they both sacrificed the power of heaven for the approval of the governments of men. And in this long history, it was inevitable that it was going to come about that this alliance would demand of the church loyalty in exchange for the favor of the state. As a consequence, in the present order, half of the people view the church as the enemy because the half that doesn't agree with, with the church's position considers the church the prime reason why the nation is in the state that it is in. This short-sighted view can only be attributed to the work of the enemy because now, you see, for at least half of the people, and that's being generous, at least half of the people, the quote, Christian message is synonymous with that which they find objectionable in the political arena. On the other side of the coin, the Roman church is going through uh, the exposure that reminds us that there is a God who cannot be mocked. The rape and abuse of children systematically over all this time was eventually going to anger the living God to the point where when all other efforts to correct it had failed, he would step in. And this is what he's doing. And now he's using the arm of the state to bring correction to a thing that could not correct itself. This has created a crisis. <laughs> it, it, it's so obvious to everyone, except the religious folks, that there is a crisis of, of faith now. The people who are part of the Roman Church have an absolute crisis of faith. The people who are part of the evangelical church who have placed their faith in the fortunes of a nation will have a massive crisis as the nation turns against it with the change of administrations. But for our point of view and from our point of view, for our purposes, what is important is not to point out the problem so much as to point out what God is doing and how God is using these events 
to bring about a shaking in the church that will be nothing short of a collapse of the infrastructure of the church leading to a rebooting of it. But, but the term rebooting really is not an accurate term so much as it is an indication of something coming back. But that thing that God will, will bring back, will br He's actually bringing it up out of obscurity. That thing is already being formed. That thing is called the body of Christ. Now, it will not be identified with the politics of nations or with the, with the world's economy or the global economy. It will be identified with the kingdom of God, with the economy of the kingdom of God, and it will revisit its purpose. Its purpose is not just to survive. Its purpose is not just to go to heaven. Its purpose is connected inextricably to the very reason God created man. God didn't just create man to save him. Saving him was the price God chose to pay associated with the risk of, of man falling away from God. But eventually, God would bring man back to God and fulfill the purpose for which he created him. When Adam sinned, there was a degeneration, a falling away from God that continued to the point where man, by the time of the flood, man had no uh, clear understanding of who God is and why God put man in the earth. So at the time of the flood, God rebooted the earth and used a righteous man and his family as a model. But God already intended to reboot the earth in a more permanent way because he knew that that was a stopgap but that the decline would continue. So in the fullness of time, God brought Jesus into the world. Jesus was the incarnation in human flesh of the person of God himself so that one could look again upon the last Adam, the last man, and see the model of who God is. So that man could say, if you've seen me, you've seen my father, because the father and I are one. He didn't just leave it, however, to our memory and to the memory of the disciples to pass on by oral tradition this rebooting of human civilization. Instead, he sent the Holy Spirit who first brought back to the attention of the disciples who Christ really was, to take of what Jesus said and to reveal it. We talked about how there are two levels of revelation. One is a more domestic level. You can read the Bible and figure things out on a human level, on a level of the human soul. But with the Holy Spirit, these same symbols, these same domestic interpretations experience a transition, experience uh, a, a, an uplift 
to the point where you can actually, in the spirit, understand the duality of the scriptures. Speaking to the, the human soul, in, even in a fallen state, and speaking to the human spirit in a restored state. So the Holy Spirit became the divine instrumentality for the explanation of who Christ is. He not only wrote the word, but he interprets the word. And in that interpretation, he restores the prime understanding. He restores the understanding that was in the mind of God before he even created man. So I want to go to that and explain this identity from the scripture. His name was called Jesus the Christ, speaking both of his humanity and his divinity. In his humanity, Jesus is Mary's son. In his divinity, he is the son of God. Flesh, you see, begets flesh, but spirit begets spirit. So when he comes into the world as the son of God, he comes as God's son, not merely Mary's son. As such, he is a spirit being. Now the nature of spirit is it can be assembled spirit to spirit. We know that because the scriptures tell us that the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God. In following the same principle of spirit to spirit, each of us possessing a spirit from God, when we are saved, the thing that is saved is our spirit. It is saved out of the, the state of, of uh, suspension, the, the, of, of um, inactivity. It's made alive by the Holy Spirit. This is Romans 8. And it is connected to and assembled to the person of Christ. And it's connected and assembled, in, not in a haphazard fashion, but in a foreordained fashion. In other words, God made every person capable of fitting in spirit into the body of Christ to be an exact representation of who God is with respect to a particular set of purposes. We'll come to that in a moment. Now, when we are born again, the spirit of the man is elevated and assembled by the Holy Spirit into the corpus Christi, the body of Christ, not the body of Jesus. That's finite. That's a human form. That's not available today to be joined to anybody. But the Spirit of Christ is available and can be joined when the Holy Spirit assembles your spirit to the Spirit of Christ. When that happens, you are reconnected to a divine order, to a pre-existent divine order. That's what God intended. And this now becomes your new identity. If you prefer, the scriptures say, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. 
the old, the identity of the soul, associated with the activities of the flesh, the old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself and now has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So the entire order of the kingdom of God, its economy, its purpose, its focus, its power, all of that is related to how you as a believer can engage the purposes of God and it's related to your identity, it's related to your purpose and all of that. I might add, this is vastly different, vastly different from any political identity or even national identity. In substituting this identity as a member of the body of Christ, born from above, born from heaven, living in the earth to display the glory of God, to show the invisible God through visible, through a visible body of Christ, in that the spirit man is housed in a natural form. This identity, when you forsake it, to go back to national identities and to national purposes, all you have then is the uncertainty of how uh, global economies work, how your own national economy works, and whether or not you're given a good chance, hopefully for the viewpoint of those who desire this, a better than average chance of participating in that economy. You may have that on one hand, but it ought never be your goal. It ought never be the purpose for your life, and it surely ought not be your identity. So here is what is said about Christ. It says, when he brought the Son into the world, when God brought Christ into the world, he said, let all God's angels worship him. Because the Son is, quote, this is verse 3 of Hebrews 1, he is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person upholding all things by the word of his power. And it goes on from there. Now, I want to show you something very significant. The brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. In other words, the way his person is accurately expressed. Now, the word image is the word character, C-H-A-R-A-K-T-E-R. That's the Greek term for the word image. And the word character means a graver, either as a tool or a person engraved. An exact copy, an express image, a stamped figure. What does this mean? This means that God, when he made Christ, established an order in the earth by which he would be seen as he is.
by which he would be seen as he actually is. Here's an insight. Here's an insight for you. In the Ten Commandments that God gave from Mount Sinai, he said, you shall have no other gods before me, first commandment, and you shall make no graven image or the likeness of anything that is in heaven above, the earth beneath, or the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor worship them, because I, the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. And it goes on from there. Now you've heard people, <clears throat> you've heard all your life, in fact, that God is jealous. And when that concept of jealousy is domesticated, it, may, it seems to make God a human, because humans are jealous. But it is as far removed from that as the soul is different from the spirit as the heavens are above the earth. Here is what God was saying. God was saying, I do not want you to make, a, to engrave an image of me in the earth or the likeness of anything for the purpose of falling down and worshipping it. In other words, in your imagination, you might imagine me to be like something in the earth or something in the heavens or something under the earth. I do not want you to make an, a, an image of any of those things for the purpose of, of worshipping me, of worshipping them. No way is God talking about whether or not you can have um, figures, artwork in your house. It, it, it has nothing to do with that. That's just the silliness of domesticating the gospel. It's about worshipping things. It's about creating things for the purpose of worship. Why? You must always ask the question, why? For most people, they're content with simply saying, because it's so, because God said that. But God loves for you to ask him why. Because when you, when, you, when, you, that, when you do, he'll give you wisdom, he'll give you insight. Why did God not want an image of anything uh, in, created for the purpose of worship? Anything in heaven, the earth, the waters under the earth. Here is why because God had already made that image of himself. He had engraven the image of himself and put it in the earth. That image of himself that is capable of carrying his likeness. That image is man. That image is man. The image, the character of God is man. That's why God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the created earth. So God made an image of himself and put it in the earth. So when he tells us, don't make any other, he's protecting his brand. He does not want us to be confused about some other thing being able to carry the image of God. Only man has been able 
to accurately carry the image of God because man is a spirit like God is a spirit. When Christ came into the world, he is the designated image of God. When he brought his firstborn into the world, he commissioned him to be the expression of God's glory. He, co he commissioned him to be the expression of God's image, God's character, God's nature in the earth. So when you're assembled to Christ, when you're added to the body of Christ, in, uh, spirit to spirit, you become part of that whose charter in the earth is to be the expression of the invisible God. That's a purpose that is unalterable. Whenever people think in terms of how much uh, power they can have, how much, what kind of an identity, frankly, people are running scared. They're running scared because they don't know what they can trust. Because the church, whether it's the Roman church or the evangelical church or every derivative in between these two extremes have fallen to the idea that the only reason we're in the earth is to be saved. I say that's, a, that's an incomplete gospel. You're saved so that you could be assembled to the body of Christ so that you could be the expression of the very person of God in the earth, the image and the likeness of God in the earth. To that end, you have to grow up. Jesus was not an expression of the Father as an infant in Mary's arms. God did not say of him at that time, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He said it when he was 30. When he was 30. Go back to the first message of this series where we talked about the huiosthesia, the mature son who is the practical expression of the Godhead. That son is Christ. There are many sons in the one son. And in this complete expression, every part does its work. It's clothed with the glory of God. It's attended by the economy of heaven. Its purpose does not waver like the, like the ocean waves here. Its purpose is steadfast, it's secure, and God is shaking everything that can be shaken to make way for the emergence of this body of Christ. This is the reality that God had in mind from before the foundations of the world. He saw us in Christ before the foundations of the, of the world to the praise of the glory of His grace. We'll continue this message the next time, but unfortunately not here by the ocean, but in my studio. I'm Sam Solon. God bless you. See you next time.